Dibbity dop dop. The temp yeah, number yeah. three. We already opened our beers. Dibbity dop dop. The cat and the dog in my hip, they all ruined the first two attempts at starting the fucking episode. Mm, and your hard drive. And my hard drive. And the cats are still fighting under the table. <laughs> now Winston. it's my foot. <laughs> Fuck this show now. Mm, <laughs> Gotta laugh through the sadness or else it all hurts. So it turns out today, in good news, it's not my back. In bad news, it's most definitely my hip. I'm sitting here. I've done this intro so many goddamn times. Fuck it. I hurt. That's all you really need. Relevant to a story you're writing, though. Exactly. So you're getting real world practice. Oh, God damn it. Fuck it all to hell. Welcome to the Nightmare Box, presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the life of my light, the vessel to which I wish to ride to glory, if that's what vessels do. (laughs) (coughs) Both in a sexual and a metaphorical way. (laughs) Kristen Bloom. You want a glory what? I can't stand up fast. (laughs) Sex is whack these days. Uh, got old man hip. Got all <laughs> fucked up hip. That's the medical term. We can we can do the scene from the movie. Oh yeah. Oh no, my hip. Oh yeah. Oh, that's darn, the spot. Oh darn tootin'. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do that later. <laughs> and we're here to bring you the second edition of the tremendous, the tumultuous, the tectonic Tuesday. And we're here to talk about Fargo. Not the TV show. Nineteen ninety six. The Cohen brothers. Fargo. Yeah. I'd never seen it before. Um, this was your first time? It was. You said you had seen it before. Did you remember any of it at all other than the, oh yeah. All I remembered was the hooker scene and the wood chipper scene. And I, as it was unraveling, I remembered when he gets shot in the face in the parking lot. But I'd completely forgotten the plot of Fargo. I had no fucking idea where it was going or if it was even going to be any good. I anybody's guess i think it was you know my late teens early 20s the last time i saw it so 10 11 years ago yeah i um it wasn't what i expected it Mm -hmm. was a vastly different movie i thought it was going to be a lot more blood and guts and action than it it was in my head i remembered it that way too where it was so much more violent (laughs) i mean i hadn't seen it but I, i remembered thinking my perception of it was it was a bit more like mafia esque, mm-hmm. like not that there was a literal mafia in it, but the bad guys were like kind of just Mob running connected, around, running through town, fucking shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was totally different than what I thought it was going to be, but not in a bad way. <laughs> um, so yeah, nineteen ninety six's Fargo, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and IMDb for the most part gave it a glowing score. It's Hell yeah. a critically acclaimed movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the critics for Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 94%. The mm-hmm. audience gave it a 93%. And I feel like it's a little low. Uh, IMDb only gave it an 8.1. Where do you sit with it? I'd say at least an 8.5. At least an 8.5? Yeah. I'm glad that you're like looking at it that way because I feel the same way. Like I really enjoyed this film, but I wasn't blown away. Like, like And granted, Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite films. But when we watched Pulp Fiction, it's like, no, I'm, I'm 99. Like, maybe one of the most perfect <laughs> things ever created. And it's then a going solid 8.5. Yeah. I'd go a little higher. You know, I'd, I'd say maybe in the 90 percentile to 92. I'd be settled in. Well, you're wrong. Roughly right around there. <laughs> Which means I'm only one or two points away from the Rotten Tomatoes scores, but <laughs> that's only because I'm a contrarian. <laughs> yeah, I'd say 8.5 um, to 8.8 eight would probably be where I'd cap out mm-hmm. at, like a very high B. Yeah, I'd be down to watch it again for sure, but not again in, you know, a year. 
you know, like maybe two or three years down the line. Um, so interestingly, this was done by the Coen brothers, was not directed by them or wasn't credited that they jointly directed it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they both didn't play more of a role, but, um, directed by Joel Cohen, produced by Ethan Cohen. Yeah, and I learned while we were going through all this, the Cohen brothers have been around a lot longer than I thought. Like roughly 10 years longer than I thought. I thought they broke in like the mid 90s. I didn't realize that like their earlier films were back in like the mid 80s. Yeah. They've been around for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um it was written by both of them so this is uh another instance much like pulp fiction where written and directed by the mm -hmm. same i mean granted they're both credited as writers and only one of them is credited as directors but written and directed by the same people and proof you can do it well it can be done really well if you're laser focused um let's go I honestly didn't do any research on the production companies. Um, it was a Lionsgate movie, though, because Brett was fascinated by the old lion. <laughs> um, well, after they made Saw, the whole thing for Lionsgate completely fucking changed. <laughs> uh, budget was $7 million. Box office was $60.6 million. Damn. So, nice return. You say 7 mil to 60 that's box office. Welcome to the world. Yeah, not yeah. even including DVD sales and all the merch and all that shit that this thing spawned. Yeah, and because uh, I, I didn't look at that whenever I was doing my notes earlier, I just happened to notice it as I was flipping through whenever I sat down. There is an incredibly long list of awards this thing has been <laughs> at least nominated for. So, um, yeah, a, a movie that people either loved or hated. Yeah, it did get breast, best breast. It did get best uh, screenplay, right? Oh, I, I believe that was one of the see. things that I saw on the blurb, oh, which is see. what intrigued me about it. So I was like, I can actually, you know, participate. Best original screenplay at the Academy Awards in 97. Fuck yeah. Also won best actress for Frances McDormand. She earned it. Yeah. Hell yeah. It, was, it looks like it won best direction at the BAFTA Film Awards. Hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, what, what, what's your general thoughts? My general thoughts? You want to get into characters and the description, and then we can hop into the conversation about no. it? Or my yeah. general thoughts no. on it? No, <laughs> we're good, yeah. I, I fucking good. loved it. <laughs> uh, characters, yeah. Do it. All right. So first we have Frances McDormand. She plays Marge Gunderson. She's our uh, pregnant police chief character. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote this down because I've heard that this movie is really good. I have not seen it, though. She did Moonrise Kingdom, and I think that was one of her, um, outside of Fargo, like, most prominent roles she had done. Mm -hmm. She was also in the movie Almost Famous, um, and I have seen that. Yeah. I don't remember what role she was in Almost Famous because I haven't seen it in years, but I was like, if she's vaguely familiar, maybe that's what I know her from. <laughs> then we've got William H. Macy, the man who threatened to shoot dogs if he didn't get in this fucking movie, who <laughs> plays Jerry Lundgaard. He's our, I guess, maybe MC. It's questionable, I think, mm. who the main character really is, but he is the broke character who comes up with a scheme to have his wife kidnapped yeah. um, so he can steal all the ransom money. But he was in Psycho, interestingly. Um, huh. Yeah, I was like, what? Like the original yeah. film? Yeah, like the original Psycho. Wow, I um, didn't know that. Uh, and I knew that I knew this actor um, 
that I'd seen his mm -hmm. face before. He's done quite a bit of stuff, but I think what I was thinking of is Jurassic Park 3. Is that the one where the T-Rex gets let loose in New York? And... No, so Jurassic Park 3, which it's not a good movie, but I've seen it. Yeah. And I was like, I remember this. He plays, I think, the father of a kid who goes, like, he's a very wealthy man in Jurassic mm -hmm. Park 3, and him and his wife um, pay the guy that does yeah. all the Jurassic Park shit. Um uh, to go on a tour, the, like a safari thing? Basically, like, I can't think of the dude's name. The one that, like, there's all those memes about him being shirtless and how attractive <laughs> he is in the back of the... Putin? No, what? no. <laughs> even though I disagree. Um, but uh, they pay him to take them to the island, and, like, initially mm -hmm. you think it's just, like, kind of a tour, and then it turns out um, their son had, for whatever reason, been hand-gliding... Uh, with a trainer in the area, and their son's like a teenager. Their son's I remember very young. That now. Yeah. And they go down on the island and lose contact because that's what wealthy people yeah. do hand glide near dinosaur islands. <laughs> so they have to go rescue their kid from the dinosaur island, and it's not. Uh, oh, the one person. Yeah. It's not, not a good movie, but I do remember his character in that. And the great Steve Buscemi plays Carl Showalter. He is the kidnapper that dies also the mm -hmm. one that has almost all of the lines <laughs> uh he was in a lot of shit yeah. but most prominently probably reservoir dogs what do you mean you don't tip <laughs> don't tip <laughs> she wants to make a better wage she get a better fucking job <laughs> love the reservoir dogs uh peter storman as gare grimsrund he's our kidnapper who is the strong silent type mm -hmm. who lives to see the end of the movie uh, he was in Armageddon, and I think what I remembered him from was the Brothers Grimm. What I remembered him from was Prison Break. He plays one of the inmates. Um, he's like a sociopathic hitman for the mob who is like one of the anti-heroes throughout like the first couple of seasons. And then, spoiler alert, gets taken out in a raid in a hotel, and it's really fucking cool. He must play the bad guy a lot because yeah. it's all of the things that... And if I remember my trivia correctly, there was something like 180 lines Buscemi has in this film, and he had 10. Yeah. He <laughs> said, I think he had one complete sentence. Yeah. <laughs> it's the whole joke at the beginning of the film. You haven't said a fucking word in four fucking hours. And then you say, no, no, you're a wealth of conversation. <laughs> uh, Harv Presnell plays Wade Gustafson. Gustafson. Uh, he's the father-in-law who's the... Uh, one who pays for the ransom. Mm -hmm. He was in Saving Private Ryan. Fuck yeah. How long has it been since you've seen that one? A long time. We might have to revisit that one, because we haven't done a war film. At maybe my early 20s. Yeah. It's been probably a good decade. I fucking love that movie. We still haven't watched uh, whatever that is over there. I'm blanking on the title. Apocalypse Now? Yes. Yeah. We, still haven't, we haven't had an extra three and a half hours. <laughs> I don't know that I want to do that one for the <laughs> podcast, though. I think I'll just watch that, that one. That Apocalypse Now in my head is one of the ones we do for the Patreon like episodes. Because it's run? three and a half hours long. Uh, we're going <laughs> to need like six episodes to break down everything that happens. And I've never seen it before. So I don't have a reference walking into it outside of I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> and the shit that Dennis Hopper says when he comes to the tribe. Those are my only two scenes. <laughs> uh, Kristen Rudrude. R U with a bunch of dots over the top. <laughs> D plays Gene Lundergarden. Uh, that's our 
again, questionably main character's uh, wife. She was in a movie called Drop Dead Gorgeous that I remember watching probably back in the 90s mm-hmm. as well, to be honest. It's a quirky movie itself. Uh, Kristen, um, damn, what is her last name? The chick that's in the original Spider-Man. Oh, it's like, don't ask me to say it again. I don't know what the dots are. <laughs> no, uh, the chick who's and the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man that plays Mary Jane Watson, yeah. Kristen something, um, is also in that movie. And it is a movie about how brutal pageants are hmm. um, because they literally kill each other to win the local pageant, like no the beauty shit. contest. It's like a horror film? Uh, like, I think it's a dark comedy as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, they're like... Uh, literally killing each other to win (laughs) the beauty pageant (laughs) that's how it happens in america then we've got tony denman plays scotty london guard uh he didn't really the only time i've said that name correctly (laughs) london guard um he didn't really have any movies he's the only one i think that i didn't list anything for he's the main character's son and he's in very little of this movie so yeah he's got the the funny line where he starts cursing while she's on the phone and she's like watch your language (laughs) Um, Larry Brandenburg plays Steve Grossman. Oh, you skipped. You skipped Steve Revis. Oh, shit. Steve Revis plays Shep Proudfoot. That's our uh, Native American mechanic character. He was in The Longest Yard. The original or the remake with Adam Sandler? Adam Sandler. Awesome. Um, Then Larry Brandenburg plays Steve Grossman. (laughs) That's uh, the father-in-law's accountant who the whole time is like, yeah, like we should do what he says, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, He was in The Shawshank Redemption. Huh. I can't even remember what his character looked like, so I can't reference which person I think it would be. Other than... He was an old white guy. Yeah, probably. Um, (laughs) The Shawshank Redemption. uh, Famously, uh, Kristen and I were talking about, and I was like, we should watch The Shawshank Redemption. We put it in, and it took me a good half of the film before I was like, I set out to put in Shawshank Redemption. We're definitely watching The Green Mile right now. (laughs) And I don't think we've ever watched Shawshank together. So they're both Stephen King prison films, and I mixed them up so hard, I brain didn't even register when the giant black guy got walked into the dead man walking. Like, I'm still waiting for Tom Hanks. What's happening? John Carroll Lynch plays Norm Gunderson. That's uh, Marge's husband, and I definitely thought this actor was a different person. I yeah. thought it was the dude that's in the Anchorman stuff that's mm-hmm. like really good friends with Will Ferrell. Um, he was in the movie Zodiac, though. I think yeah. he plays the bad guy. Yeah, he and... plays the main suspect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely thought it was the dude from Anchorman, though. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put that together until I looked They look a lot alike. Yeah. And then Steve Park plays Mike Yaganita. Yeah, and I just felt like this deserved an honorable <coughs> mention, because there's a couple of other people that were side characters that I marked yeah. off that we're not going to talk about. This dude deserved an honorable mention for having the most uncomfortable scene in the whole movie. <laughs> uh, he's Marge's crazy high school friend. Um, again, hadn't really done anything yeah. I was familiar with, but... The one who admits that he's in love with her, and then Basically. coincidentally, because he lies about having a wife, she puts the whole plot of the thing together that's part of our topic okay well let's get into our topics we got topics left and right i'm just talking to you my love where do you want to start i've got Uh, a couple of notes you got a couple of notes we got a couple of same notes go for the synopsis um so the film i feel like leaves details out intentionally so there's Mm -hmm. stuff going on in the movie that you never really understand the depth of um but our main ish character jerry is really hard up for money. And I don't know if it's because he's in debt or if he's put himself in debt because he wants to buy this parking lot to better his life Mm -hmm. or what's going on. 
but he needs money. Yeah. And so he devises a plot to have um, these two guys kidnap his wife so that he can pay them the quote-unquote $40 ransom when really he's, uh, or he's telling them he's uh, stealing 80000 from father-in-law and he's yeah. going to give them 40 of it when really he's stealing a million from father-in-law. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, it's this whole scheme of these bad guys who are yeah. bumbling idiots that he doesn't really know anything about that kidnap the wife, ultimately kill the wife. and They uh, kill like three people immediately yeah. and the whole plan spirals out A of lot of shit goes wrong. <laughs> Jerry never really has control of the situation. And then Marge, who is a very, very pregnant wife, just like immediately figures him out. <laughs> She's like, oh, you guys are idiots, aren't you? Yeah. Marge has one of my favorite... We'll get to the the dialogue and stuff. But yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good synopsis. And then we get to watch uh, Buscemi get fed into a wood chipper. And then the quiet guy gets shot in the leg. And then Marge goes home and has the cutest conversation with her husband <laughs> about adorable. stamps. Um, I think first and foremost, we definitely have to talk about the location. Apparently, yeah. the Cohen brothers grew up in Minnesota. Huh. Um. I don't know how much of their life they spent there, but that was something I read that they grew up in Minnesota and wanted yeah. to do a movie in Minnesota. Supposedly, uh, they've kind of changed their answer on this. Like, the movie's quote-unquote based on a, true story. a crime that's yeah. happened, but they've been very vague on the details and said that the crime didn't even happen in Mo mm -hmm. Minnesota at all. So I don't know if maybe there was just this nostalgic love of their hometown or mm -hmm. whatever it was. But um, Well, there was a wood chipper murder, which they claim at some points that that's what it was based on. And then there's another quote where he goes, the truest part is that it is a story. This is a true story. <laughs> it's a story we told. Yeah. That is true. Um, I read, I think in the trivia earlier today, that uh, apparently they had uncharacteristically low snow yeah. uh, the it year that they filmed this. It was a very warm winter. So mm -hmm. they had to take and film it in like North Dakota and somewhere else that wasn't yeah. anywhere near the town they were trying to actually have in the movie because uh, there was so little snow. They had to go <laughs> further north. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the town itself is, I feel like one of the biggest characters in this movie are mm -hmm. kind of the towns we travel back and forth between anyway. It reminds me a lot of Billings, Montana, because we have only driven through North Dakota and every time I've South driven Dakota. through South Dakota, I've driven through yeah. North Dakota and it's the saddest goddamn interstate <laughs> you're ever going to see in your life. But, uh, the outside of Billings, not Billings itself, but like kind of even more Northeast out that direction, almost to Canada. It is just flat and white. <laughs> and whenever we drove to move up here, um, we came up through South Dakota, so we were kind of southeast mm -hmm. Montana, like working our way up towards north. Um, very similar, just flat, and it goes on for eternity. So yeah. I would imagine in the winter it is just all white. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the fact that they chose to set it in this location in winter is pivotal to the movie because we have these characters that are living these kind mm -hmm. of very unsatisfying lives. And when you set it against this background, that's just all white and all depressing and yeah. just like washes out anything bright or sunny. The horizons or... right over there and there's nothing to fucking look at. Yeah. <laughs> and like through a huge chunk of the movie, you never even really see the sun. It seems like we're constantly in the middle of a snowstorm. And I mm -hmm. feel like that has to be intentional. Like, 
it feels like genuinely kind of hopeless the whole movie mm-hmm. like you're never gonna get out of this town you're gonna be stuck here forever and nothing ever good is gonna happen for you yeah i like the way you characterized it the landscape as a character that's I mean, not something that we've talked about like in depth on the show for any film before so like they've done it especially well here and i'm gonna bring this up a bunch as we go through because it feels like an early run rewatching this mm-hmm. um Knowing my love for No Country for Old Men, this feels like an early run of No Country. And they do the same thing with the Texas landscape in No Country. That oppressive desert becomes a character in and of itself. That you can't escape. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, um, the only character really ever at any point in this movie that seems vaguely satisfied with her life Mm -hmm. and has it together is Marge. Like, we have... The high school character who's yeah. living this miserable life. We have um, Jerry and his wife who don't really seem to have like a very strong relationship mm-hmm. with each other. And he's horribly unsatisfied with the direction his life is going. And then you have these bad guys who have so aggressively bumbled this job <laughs> that they were supposed to take that it feels like... We're literally just counting down until yeah. they get caught. Yeah, they're in a state of panic just doing coke and fucking hookers. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I, I feel like if we had done this, like, out in the desert or somewhere else that didn't feel so oppressive, like, yeah. it wouldn't have worked the way that the movie worked. Like, it literally feels like you can't go anywhere. Like, yeah. the white just goes on for an eternity. And it punctuates the fuck out of the violence in this film, which is one of my notes I've got over here. <laughs> but, like... The, the the most famous scene of all is the wood chipper. That blood looks so goddamn rich against all of that white. The Swedish dude running out in the frozen lake and getting shot feels so isolated. The overall parking lot shots where it's just a car and a parking lot. Or even the famous scene where she throws up at the car accident slash murder, you know, that's out there. That body that many people think might be Prince is just out there in the snow. Like it, it, it gives it distance at the same time. It gives it immediacy to the violence that's happening on screen. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think the wood chipper scene is obviously yeah. the most uh, significant of those because it's, I'd, and I would imagine they had so much fun doing the art <laughs> for that scene because, you know, the art people probably went through and just started dumping red yeah. everywhere. Like, it was probably a lot of fun They've to film. They've got their prop foot that refuses <laughs> to feed all the yeah. way. <laughs> and yeah, their, their fake corn syrup mm. red-dyed blood that they're probably just out there flinging on the snow. So I'm, I would imagine it was a ton of fun to create. But yeah, like... There's a shockingly large amount of just blood all over Out this of white nowhere. snow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like so vibrant. And mm-hmm. like a lot of the characters in the movie, I feel like kind of wear just dull clothes. Like our main um, good guy character that we're following is Marge, and she just has her little brown police coat on <laughs> that she wears everywhere. And like a lot of the characters don't really wear like vibrant colors, except for, I think, the only exception is the dead body that's out in the yeah. distance is wearing a bright orange jacket. Yeah. So, yeah, like, the presence of this very obvious body in the background becomes a bit more like, oh, there's a body back there because it's all white and then just dead dude. And, like, her line when she sees that body is hilarious. It's like, oh, seems like a nice guy. Got his pistol. (laughs) the cop, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I, I think, too, the fact that I've never been to 
I don't think I've even driven through Minnesota. I've never been to Minnesota before. I think, too, the fact that it's set specifically in Minnesota mm-hmm. kind of lends to this weirdly quirky characteristic charm yeah. of this location because they all have these like very convincing thick accents mm-hmm. it, well it, i think much to what you were saying about the landscape the town itself is a character as well within the character of the the snow you know because everybody has this similar oh little, don't you know oh don't you know <laughs> oh darn tootin <laughs> <laughs> And there were a lot of negative reviews that I read, because I always try to do that. I want to see the one-star reviews and the two-stars all the way up to the ten-star reviews. And they were like, well, it's the same thing that they do in Southern films, you know? They fucking, they go after you. Oh, hell no, I ain't doing that. You know, like, they go after the Southern accent. But here it feels endearing. It feels like it's counter. It's the foil to the violence that's happening. It's this very, you know, not Southern charm, but Mid-Eastern, middle Midwestern charm, yeah. you know, that engulfs every character here. Yeah, and I don't feel... They're I mean, reacting to it differently. Again, I've never been to Minnesota, so maybe... Um, oh, Minnesota. <laughs> natives of Minnesota, Minnesotans, would mm-hmm. uh, find it a bit more obvious, but I didn't feel like at any point watching this movie that the accents felt forced or fake yeah. or anything like that it felt like these actors had spent some time practicing it and trying to get it down and i was like i would buy that all of these people were from minnesota from like a rural town yeah, yeah. and like yeah it is the kind only of... time that they make fun of it's the hooker scene oh yeah right there like yeah. that feels like they're like all right now we're just trying to make you giggle <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it does add this like kind of extra charm i think because there's so much violence happening and i think my favorite is when um, the guy, uh, is talking to the dude that's staying up at the lake house or yeah. whatever. And like, like the cop is interviewing him and he's like, oh yeah, he was like, just telling me, you know, there's this dead guy that he killed and you know, he's just, he's going crazy up there. He really <laughs> needs some company and he killed a dude and he'll kill again if he has to. And yeah, that's the story, you know, and then, like, <laughs> he's telling him this like such simplistic, yeah. what's like, he look like? He looks strange, strange how? Just, just, strange. just strange. <laughs> and the cop literally replies back like, oh yeah, it's probably nothing. <laughs> like the charm behind just like these like people just like, like they're worried because the uh, character in that scene is literally shoveling his uh, driveway and he's yeah. like, oh yeah, there, there's a storm rolling in, you know, and he's just shoveling his driveway. Like their worry is literally just surviving the winter so when yeah. all this other shit's going on they're like i really can't be bothered no. you know I'm... things die out here i don't know what to tell you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like i like there's this weird endearing charm to how like like average everybody's responses yeah to like everything. they're all very blase about the whole yeah. situation <laughs> <laughs> like even marge whenever she sees the dead body she's just like oh just a bit of morning sickness and that's done now <laughs> Well, that's my favorite part about her character. I'm I'm not looking at notes. I reviewed them all before, so I'm sorry. Guide me back on the trails if you need to. Back pain. How alcohol. dare you. I know. <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts, uh, having rewatched this film, is how they went against all of the, not only women tropes, pregnant women tropes, and female police officer tropes. That they didn't indulge. So, like, she never gives birth. Her water never breaks. Her pregnancy never gets in the way of what she's trying to do. She just happens to be a pregnant character. She doesn't give birth 
on screen. She's giving birth two minutes after. She's pregnant coming in. So she creates this reality to this story because she obviously has a before and after. Yeah, and I saw too, uh, I think it was in the trivia on IMDb, that when she initially auditioned, she wanted the role of either like a mm-hmm. killer or a hooker. Like she yeah, didn't like she audition. put in for a hooker and then, <laughs> then she had to like spend a couple of months hanging out with a pregnant cop to like get the mannerisms. Yeah. I also learned that, I'm sorry, okay. um, I've read a lot of trivias. Um, trivias. Trivias. She <laughs> left her pregnancy suit that had like a belly that was filled with like seeds and stuff like that, kind of like wild, wild west, the joke that they make about the boobs being filled with seeds. But she had a seed belly and fake breasts that went on top of hers to make her look pregnant. And she left it like outside and then like halfway through shooting the next day because the temperature differences or whatever that had happened, her like left breast exploded while they were filming the scene and they had to replace her whole pregnancy <laughs> suit. no boobs, <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, that is, it's interesting to see because for one, um, she predominantly works alone. Like we see her calling other cops mm-hmm. with like questions and stuff, but she doesn't have like a ride along partner that goes with her. She's the police chief. So she's the highest up and yeah. she's still out there driving around trying to solve this thing. And like whenever they're sitting at dinner at the little <laughs> buffet, like she mentions in passing in front of her husband, yeah, I'll drive out there. And her husband's like, oh, you will? Okay. You know, like she's not like a weak or meek character. She's not. But she has this beautiful relationship with her husband simultaneously because like we establish early on, I mean, she's not seen for the first 30 minutes, but like once she is an established character... We establish that she's the breadwinner in the family, that the husband, like, paints for stamp competitions and stuff like that. It's adorable. Um, So she's she's the breadwinner in the situation. Yeah, but, like, she goes out and she gives him, like, a quote-unquote man job, which is, like, Prowler won't start mind giving me a jump. (laughs) So, like, he has to, like, go into classic, you know, male mode where it's like, all right, well, I'm jumping the car. (laughs) (laughs) I like to, um, I think that's my favorite thing. I think it's a stereotype for one in general that women are, um, weaker characters a lot of the time. So like a lot of, um, old sitcom-y type movies where Mm -hmm. you kind of see this relationship in the home life. Like for instance, I don't know why that came to mind, but like everybody loves Raymond. Like, um, Mm -hmm. Raymond's character is the breadwinner and Deborah's like the stay at home mom and like always nagging him. And like there, you see that like comical tension of wife's driving me crazy. (laughs) Um, and I, I hate that women are stereotypically viewed as one weaker and less sufficient. Mm -hmm. And then two, if there is a strong woman, she's viewed as domineering. And at no point in this movie is Marge like, Trying to outshine yeah. her husband. She doesn't come off as a quote-unquote bitch at all yeah. in any of her interactions. She doesn't feel like a climber. She doesn't feel like she's trying to be a man. She's yeah. just a pregnant woman who cares when, about her town and is trying to protect it like her own child. And when she's interviewing Jerry even and he snaps at her, she's like, okay, don't yell though. Like, what's going on with you? Like, why are we acting hateful? You know, and like... She's, like, super polite in all of her interactions. Even after she shoots the dude and she's got him in the back of the car. It's like, I don't know why you would do that. Was it for the money? Oh, it's such a perfect day. (laughs) She's like, there's more important things than money. Don't you know that? Um, But, yeah, and, like, her character 
is clearly, if we're just being objective, like doing the more important job than her mm. husband. Like her job is dangerous. She's very heavily pregnant. Like she's putting herself in harm's way. She yeah. shot a dude earlier that day before she came home. And like she has this adorable conversation with her husband where they're just sitting in bed and she's like, I'm proud of you. You're the best painter. Yeah. And like, well, the thing was that the big final scene he goes yeah i won the competition for the three cent stamp and she's so fucking excited for him and he goes ah but so and so won it for the 29 cent stamp nobody ever buys the three cent stamp and she like pats him on the leg and she goes no honey when the price of stamps go up everybody buys the three cent stamp they can't afford the higher price and like he smiles and it's just just this like well she's saying consolation Yeah. yeah she's saying too uh when the Stamps change and the price goes up. People have the old stamps that are the cheaper stamps that yeah. are no longer um, un- like expensive enough to mail with. So she's like, you need the little stamp to accompany <laughs> the bigger stamp so you can still use the bigger stamp. She's like, it's like the little helper. Yeah, like she's so fucking cute. Like they're that they're adorable in that final scene. I fucking love it. I like too that because um, it's so bizarre but like so endearing. Like even their conversations with each other are just so average. Mm-hmm. Like you never see like these heated like conversations where they're angry or these yeah. like hyper no intimate dramatic cutbacks. Yeah, no <laughs> hyper intimate conversations where they're banging in bed together or any of that. She's like, oh, they're watching a program and then he's got chips in bed and he's clearly already asleep mm-hmm. on her shoulder and she's just like, I think I'm gonna call it and he's like Oh, are you? Okay. <laughs> it's just so every day. And like... I'm it's a beautiful establishment of character. Where a lot of other films tend to fail. Especially like in our two-star segments. We see characters where it's like we need drama and you know immediacy in every scene. Like this one, again, referring to another film that we've done on the show. With Pulp Fiction. That ability to just sit in this moment that you're in it doesn't need an immediacy it needs to have a point from a writing standpoint it needs to push the story forward but it doesn't need to be now (laughs) i think it makes it a little more relatable too because um like there are you know obviously like actual cops who go out and see these horrific things on the job but then they still have to come home and live like their normal lives in between their shifts and like you and i don't um do jobs like that or anything like that but like i don't anymore yeah you don't anymore (laughs) um but like we still have like even outside of like our actual jobs and like our intimate relationship and our fights and all that stuff like like these really average moments that everybody can relate to Mm -hmm. like you came to bed last night i was like oh did you unplug the heating pad (laughs) okay good (laughs) you know like you helped me put my sweatpants on because (laughs) my hip is shot (laughs) But it's like, like there are real life in everybody's life, no matter what your job is mm-hmm. or what you do, like these little, like just kind of average moments in your life that like make up the whole yeah. of your life. And so I think like it felt weird at first initially until we kind of got into the movie. But I think once you kind of see the movie as a whole and you have these kind of little moments, it's like, oh, but that's really what life is like. Yeah. And conversely, you have the Buscemi and his partner who, I don't have my character list directly in front of me, but they feel more like a bickering couple in an average American film. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is true, though. And they're all shot in such immediacy. They say, fuck every other goddamn word. There's always something going wrong. They can't agree. He goes, take me to House of Pancakes. And he goes, how about we get some hookers? And the guy just looks at him and he's like, 
but I'm hungry oh, now. I'm hungry now. <laughs> and he's like, all right, fine. We'll go to the house of pancakes and then we'll go get some fucking hookers. Yeah, happy. And then he just like looks back out with like a scowl. And so it feels like Buscemi is the woman in the relationship there. You know, where <laughs> it's like, well, we've got all these plans. We got to do all these things. And conversely, the other guy's making all the fuck ups is the dumb American husband character. I need to look more into it, but spontaneously, that's not a bad theory <laughs> on this film. Yeah, it's not. Um, <laughs> I, I like too, um, Margin Norm in particular, I think because we just show these kind of mundane moments in their mm-hmm. life in between, they feel so wholesome in comparison to the rest of the movie yeah. like um jerry's character is unhappy enough that he has his wife kidnapped our two bad guys are literal like can we pause gangsters. on like how relaxed the wife was when the dude's trying to break in the back window and she's like oh that's a strange fellow yeah yeah that was weird uh yeah I mean, she panics immediately afterwards, but she definitely watched a dude in a ski mask peek in her window for far too long. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I like I think because so many of the other characters are so unhappy with their lives, like it kind of makes the two of them like mm-hmm. even though their lives kind of seem a little boring in between, like that much more wholesome because it's like they are universally kind of like the heart of the movie yeah. where. Everything else is blood and guts and I'm broke and I'm unhappy and I want to change. And their final interaction brings us back to a moral center, just like a police officer having to go to work and then come home and take off the vest. And it's like, okay, well, now you're dead. You know, (laughs) like you can't stay cop 24 fucking seven. Mm -hmm. You need to come home and just be the person who has a job. So she brings us back down as an audience and then cut to black. I've still got about two more months. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute, yeah, because they make some comment about how they're all right, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, two more months." Two more months. <laughs> super cute, though. Um, humor for the movie, yeah, because um, it's such a bizarre movie. If we're yeah. being well, it's it, it it's a black comedy is how they sell it. Mm. You know, I, it's not quite a murder mystery enough to be a murder mystery so it, but it's not enough funny for me to be a black comedy but there is a lot of humor in the film like mainly in just like how blase everybody is about what the fuck is going on none of them seem excited this seems like every day for these characters yeah like so unfazed by everything um uh, what was that tv show we were watching it was happy i think yeah where... yeah yeah where he's he's like got a, the little unicorn dude, yeah, the donkey like, floating over his yeah, shoulder. Yeah, and he's like going through withdrawals and like just this character that's like really unhinged and it's kind of dark. His yeah. own daughter is who gets kidnapped and that that's not that much of a spoiler alert. Brett and I have only seen like two episodes <laughs> of it, so they reveal that super early in and I don't know how any of the rest of that show goes. But it feels a bit more like punchy gimmicky like yeah. humor where they're trying to be like like ash versus the evil yeah band. like yeah. trying to be over the top funny and i think that's the interesting thing about this movie is like i at no point really i don't think ever in this movie laughed yeah. um it wasn't a movie where i was like rolling on the floor like in hysterics but it's like pulp fiction was funnier yeah <laughs> but, it, but it, it's a movie that's so quirky in its mm-hmm. sense of humor where it's like oh it's kind of it is kind of a little charming though yeah. you know like it, it's oh he's got his gun seems like a good guy <laughs> i think it's an interesting <laughs> choice where i i wouldn't 
yeah, it's listed as like a dark comedy, I guess, but I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, it's a comedy. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, like it's a quirky, dark, kind of charming Drama, film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's an interesting choice because you do have these moments where it's like, this is the humor in the moment. Like whenever they kidnap the wife and then they get to the cabin finally and mm-hmm. she's got the ski mask on backwards and <laughs> she's got no shoes on and she keeps stumbling around and like Bushimi's just sitting there going, ah, <laughs> like that dumb bitch. Yeah, or the scene where like he's just watching the dude run away, you know, like in the night and they're like fucking with each other about shooting the guy in the vest. Am I remembering that correctly? The, uh... Where the, the two killers are just watching dude go running through the field and the, they're like conversing over like who's going to shoot him or whatever they're no, saying. No, the like, blonde dude's the only one because he oh, steals the car and chases him down. Am I mixing up scenes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the blonde dude like hops in the car yeah. and chases him down. But yeah, he does just kind of watch him run away and then he's like, all right, you got to go. <laughs> um, and two, the, the comical like nature of the fact that he had the shorter, weaker dude drag the cop's body. Yeah. <laughs> When they could clearly see a car coming and he at no point gets out of the car to help them. He's like, ah, fuck it. I'll deal with that. I'm going to kill this other boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and like, the hookers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, too, um, which I didn't even really think about that. Uh, and the conversation Marge has with him after the fact. <laughs> so Did he strange? Well, he was circumcised. Well, was he strange in so, any other way? <laughs> do I need to start inspecting decks in North Dakota? Like, what do you want me to do? Bushimi's trying to pick up the one hooker. He's like, so you find this kind of work interesting, huh? And she's like, what do you mean? <laughs> but yeah, I like I didn't even think about that until I was reading reviews on this earlier today. Like the harsh cutting behind when they pick up the hookers together mm-hmm. we immediately go into the hotel room while they're both having sex and then they keep the hookers around to watch tv yeah. and then they're just hanging out watching tv yeah and when like shep or whatever his name is it shep proudfoot mm-hmm. is that the right name for yeah. him uh like bursts into the room and like slaps the hooker off of the chevy he's like hey i was fucking her <laughs> That was a pretty tense scene, though. Like yeah, I was gets like, gets his ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of when you can tell the movie's kind of shifting gears a little bit because, mm-hmm. like, the intensity of the violence definitely changes after that. Ramps up. Gets very Tarantino esque. Yeah, because that's the first time I think we see the violence up close, and then after that, mm-hmm. he shoots um, father-in-law, gets shot in the face himself, and we see Eats like an the... axe to the neck. Yeah, and the fucking wood chipper. Yeah, so like I. There's a very clear shift in intention in that mm-hmm. moment in the movie. And I think that's interesting, too, because I was like, oh, shit's about to get real. <laughs> um, and then we never see Shep again after that. Yeah, just disappears. Just fucks up Bashami and leaves. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's... I, like an interesting choice storyline, too, because that happens a lot. Like, Jerry's character leaves and... Um, at this point, like, runs away from the cop whenever she's interviewing him. And at this point, father-in-law is already dead. Mother is already dead. And he's got a teenage son at home that we mm-hmm. just assume he leaves home alone and goes on the run. Yeah. Um, yeah, Shep's character completely disappears from the story. Um, and, like, there's a lot of, like, just things that drop off that we never really get explained to. Like, why does Jerry need the money or yeah. any of that stuff? Well, didn't that have something to do with a real estate development deal? I don't see how... I, I... 
Sorry, Kristen had to get up to get me my beer because I tried to stand up and remembered my hip is fucked up. So this is what I think is interesting because I don't think I really caught the significance of her old high school friend, Mike, yeah. uh, until I read Because he lies about having a wife. Well, I, I don't think I caught that that was significant for Marge in particular. I was yeah. just like, oh, that's weird. He's a old high school friend that was just randomly in the movie and then lied to her. And I don't think I caught on the first viewing that that was her being like, oh, he told a lie. Maybe Jerry's telling a lie. Yeah. She's like, let me double back and talk to him. So, like, whenever I was reading the reviews or, like, discussions about that earlier today, like, it had me wondering, is anything Jerry says ever... Is it reliable? Reliable, yeah. Because, yeah. like, he tells um, the kidnappers he's only asking for 80 and he'll pay them half, which is 40. Mm-hmm. In the deal for the parking lot, he tells the dad he needs 700 and then suddenly the ransom's a million. Yeah. Like, it just keeps going and going and going. And I'm like... And it goes off screen. Like, the money builds almost entirely out of earshot. Yeah, so, like, I'm, like, I I don't really know if anything Jerry is saying, and I guess that's kind of the point of the Mike character. Like, I don't know if anything Jerry is saying is factual. Like, does he need the money because he's bad off? Does he need the money because he's tired of living the life that he lives? Mm. Like, See, I thought it was, and I'd have to rewatch, I guess, those opening 30 minutes, but I thought the deal was that he'd proposed this real estate investment and then wade cut him out and was like well thank you i'll pay you a finder's fee uh but you're not getting the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and then that's when it starts kind of unraveling for his character and then for some reason he needed the cash well he had already set up the deal to kidnap the wife ahead of time before that um so he was already, like, in need of money ahead of time before that. And then starts immediately doing these really shady things. Like, yeah. he steals the car off the parking lot to give to the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why, I guess, according to one of the things I was reading, because I was confused on that, why the um, lawyers keep harassing him about the stuff he's faxed over, because it's in relation to that car that's gone missing. Yeah, and he's I... sending them the... That's the deal with Shep. That's the connection that brings Shep about, is... That they did an inventory of the cars and nothing was found missing. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I thought on first viewing, cause they said that they had given him, um, uh, I thought my right ear was feeling funny. It was because I had the silicone part had separated from the headphone. Did you put it back on or did Nope. It's on the floor oh. and my <laughs> head to get it? Nope. You're good. Keep um, going. Well, no, because the, the people that he's talking to says that they gave him an advance of so much money, and they're like, if we don't get these numbers, we're going to have to recall that money. So I'm like, did they give him the money? Yeah. Like, where did the money go? So, like, I'm very confused if he was already financially troubled before, or if he started making these deals because he wanted to buy the lot to... Do the investment. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I like that, and I think Mike's character kind of enunciates that for me, is, like, at what point are we being lied to mm-hmm. because yeah the money just keeps growing and growing yeah. and growing and he clearly says the deal for the parking lot is like 700 or whatever it's not a million dollars so why do we suddenly need a million <laughs> like so i i don't and maybe that's intentional i don't get 
what I don't even think I picked up on like how unreliable he was as a character. I didn't yeah. I didn't realize the distance. Yeah, that's interesting. And I feel like that's got to be a little bit intentional, but at the same time part of me is like what is Jerry's deal? <laughs> <laughs> awkward conversation it's not awkward conversation <laughs> now i feel like i've gone deaf in my right ear <laughs> on top of all it? of my other problems you want me to get it yeah why not sure sure show she's oh yeah oh yeah oh not there Kristen. jesus that's my penis <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, do you know where it went nope interesting i feed her off before there's a lot of bottle caps under this couch it probably didn't go down there all right, well. I don't know. You want some different headphones? No, it's all right. I'll survive. I'm sorry I killed the momentum. You did. How dare you. I can't move. <laughs> we should buy you some proper headphones. That's what we should do. Okay. Lots of dead space. All the dead air. Thank you. You're welcome. You should beatbox. I don't know how to beatbox. Help me out here. (laughs) There you go. Sitting with my husband, Brett, talking about a movie that I've only seen once. I don't know how to rhyme, so. (laughs) Don't know what we're going to talk about next. Are you back? I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. (laughs) My fucking little plastic part fell out and then got (laughs) jammed into my eardrum. And on top of all my other problems, I'm drunk. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So what's up next, love? I I mean, we've blown through pretty much all of my notes. I just, I I think there's a, a charm, like I said earlier, to how subtle and downplayed the funny moments are and also... Interesting that it feels like we're coming in in the middle of the story and leaving still kind of in the middle of the story. Like, it feels like we're seeing a snapshot of a couple of people's lives and not really getting the privilege of knowing them as people. Like, it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. like the traditional hero's arc where you get to know the character from, you know, the yeah. womb to the grave or whatever. Like, this is just like, oh, this is what Marge's day was like today. Well, that's maybe a topic we can close on. Um Unless you've got more. I don't. But my feeling watching this is this feels like first draft of No Country. And No Country gives the audience that same sort of feeling. Like, we don't understand Shigur unless you've read the novel and, you know, feel the same way as I feel about the character, which is that he is the personification of death and justice in the world. <laughs> um, as a foil to Tommy Lee Jones's character. Um, but you're dropped into this weird situation in no country. Trailer park guy goes hunting, finds cartel cash, gets hunted down, gets killed off screen. So you don't even get that version of the hero's death. And then the killer walks off screen and then we weird cut to Tommy Lee Jones going, I don't want to be sheriff anymore. (laughs) But it's at a table, and it's an intimate conversation with his wife, which switches the power dynamic of this film from, oh, honey, you painted your stamp. I don't know why I gave him an Irish accent. (laughs) Um, 
Cool. Zane's preserved. Yeah, it cuts out on uh, Tommy Lee Jones going, yeah, I don't think I can, you know, he's telling the story about his father with the fire driving them through the desert so that they can, you know, follow the flame. And it has a very similar feel. Do you notice any of those connections? Do you think that there's something intentional later on with No Country that kind of winks back at Fargo? I think I'd have to watch them closer together because I'm not as big a No Country fan as you are. (laughs) Um, I I think stylistically the Coen brothers definitely have a distinct style, so I think it's hard to ignore that... um, the mood that they purposely evoke in their movies is very obvious. Um, big fan of big wide open shots. And yeah. Kind of this feeling of weird, somewhat being isolated, yeah. but also you can't escape. Like their movies are very much like you're here alone, but also you can't get away. Yeah. Um, like Burn After Reading has like Brad Pitt as like a fitness instructor. And I believe the same, the lady who played Marge, and I may be way off, I believe she comes back in Burn After Reading as like a woman who, you know, works for the fitness instructor, but she doesn't feel sexy anymore. So like she needs the money and they get caught up in like the CIA plot. <laughs> never seen that movie. Burn After Reading's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Either way, um, regardless of whether or not the movies have things in common, um, there is a distinct style. You can tell that they've found a voice Mm -hmm. that they um, definitely use to kind of weave these stories. Um, Yeah, and I I think it's an interesting choice because, yeah, I guess No Country, that's true too. Like, you don't really feel like you're getting a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's just kind of the... yeah present neatly wrapped up with a bow like this feels like we got dropped off in the middle of the day and then had to go back home you know <laughs> yeah, like... like the whole film feels like how they teach you how to write a scene it feels like we came in way too late for me to understand what's happening in both no country and fargo and then you pulled me out before i knew how it was supposed to actually go so it leaves so much shed up to interpretation what was the significance of xyz who are these characters and what are they meant to represent? I do think, um, I guess probably in the way um, your McCormack... Cormac McCarthy? McCormack, yeah, McCormack, yeah. Mick Cormack works too. <laughs> Mick, Mick Cormack. <laughs> Cormack McCarthy. Um, books probably. My, my Cormack Yes, McCarthy. your Mick Cormack. I love that man. <laughs> uh, books too. I think maybe that's intentional because I, I feel like when you give a small snapshot and you don't get the whole story, but the story that you get is relatable to some degree. You Mm -hmm. kind of interpret meaning into your own life. Um, And like, I know you've said you've read books for um, that Cormac has written that like feel like their life lessons, depending on the stage of your life that you're in. Um, And I I think maybe my last one is Sutri and it's just because I'm waiting on him to drop one more before he dies. So I know that's not the last Cormac McCarthy I get to read. (laughs) But I think maybe there's an intention behind with the Coen brothers, like showing just a snippet and having these kind of moments that feel so average and so relatable because you walk away being like, how did I get here and where am I going from here instead mm-hmm. of how did they get here and this is how their story ended. 
So I, I think to some extent it kind of forces you to put your own perspective on the situation. Do you think that's their signature, or are you saying that that's the tie-through for both those films individually? I, I mean, I haven't seen enough Coen Brother movies, I think, to definitively say they do that every time, but I think definitely... And at least some of their work, it is kind of like this is a snapshot. and Of a bizarre situation that by the time it's over, you're going to have more questions than answers. Yeah, and like <laughs> what this means to you is up to you. Like mm-hmm. I don't have an answer that I'm giving you. Like this story means what it means in your life, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think at least for these two movies anyway, there has been that element. Um and I, I, I do definitely think that it's a signature of theirs having this sensation of isolation, mm-hmm. but also, like I said, like it's like a a journey that you can't escape either. Like yeah, you're, like there's a crazy sense of community between, like everybody's foiled, but nobody's the bad guy, <laughs> to a degree. I don't know. Except for the kidnappers. Except for the kidnappers. <laughs> But God bless Steve Buscemi and God bless my wife, Kristen Pennington, for coming up with this new, Kristen Bloom, for coming up with this new (laughs) format for the show. I love it. I'm sorry I ruined it with my downed ear and my bad hip. You ruin everything. I try. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) But I, uh, I was the husband with the three cent stamp today and I got chili cooking. No, uh, you got all the stuff done. Got the dishwasher done and the dryer done. So I'm the man with the three cent stamp. But I feel like a man with a 29 cent stamp. <laughs> and I'm going to go get drunk while Kristen showers. And then we're going to get fat and fart on each other. So, <laughs> Sounds like a boy. Do you have anything else to talk no. about, love? I love you, sweetheart. I love you. And I love you guys. And we will talk to you on Saturday, Sunday, whenever the fuck we feel like it. Because my hip hurt. Maybe even Monday. Maybe even Monday.